And I ended up bankrupting myself, building it, forcing myself to sell it, in which case I made a bunch of money. And I realized like, ah, okay, so you can make money doing this. You know, when the chips are down in the architecture field, you can always, you know, build homes and sell them. Oh, it's never been smooth sailing. It's always hard work. You know, architecture is hard work, whether you're super famous and work just walks in the door or you're not and you have to get work. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we talk to Glenn Arani, a native Angelino and the founder of Glenn Arani Architects, an architecture firm that's been at the forefront of environmental research, sustainability, and breathtaking design for over 20 years. You've probably passed by one of his designs while in the LA area, which is actually how I first met him. I was walking on the outskirts of Venice when I was struck by this beautifully designed house. It was so striking, in fact, that I had to get out of my car and literally take a picture of it. I immediately searched for anyone who knew anything about this house and bumped into someone surveying the land outside. It turned out to be Glenn, the architect behind the house. I knew I had to ask him some more questions, so we set up this interview. I want to momentarily go back to the house. When you find yourself in front of an Irani structure, there exists this immediate immersion and connection, not only to the physical structure, but the design philosophy behind it. It engulfs you with its unique self-defined design, while simultaneously stimulating your senses, causing you to stand back and just drop your jaw. And today we have the opportunity to explore the mind of the man behind it all. Glenn grew up with a worldview that differed from that typical first-generation American. He grew up in an environment where not only was he able to see himself grow, but also he was able to witness firsthand the development of the city around him. He soon developed an eye for design. Well, I grew up in Nichols Canyon area, Laurel Canyon. Where I grew up, everything came up around me. Like I wasn't just inserted into a built environment. The environment was built all around me. And a lot of the great architects that were around back then were hitting their stride right around when I came to life. So by the time I was able to ride my bike around the neighborhood, I was seeing a lot of the results of their work. And that really sank in deep. I remember sitting in the car with my mom and my my, my best buddy. And, uh, you know, I don't know where the question came up, but he said, like, Glenn, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I just said, an architect. You know, it was just that simple. It, it, it's not even something I thought about. Did you even know what and an architect I, did at that point? I knew that an architect designed buildings. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't know any architects. I didn't know <laughs> anything about architecture. I really even understood what architecture was until I got to college. And it just lit me up. You know, I just was absolutely um, surprised at how much architecture encompassed and the meaning of architecture and how powerful of a medium it is. Glenn started to understand the power within architecture to shape experience. This realization astonished and moved Glenn. He realized that he wanted to explore architecture, so he started looking towards college as a way to develop his understanding and love of design in a more structured way. I don't think I decided on Cal Poly. I think, you know, back then, you know, parents didn't really give you much guidance, uh, you know, like what's a good school and what's a bad school. You know, I just looked at, you know, what schools had architecture. And, you know, I know that Cal Poly was a very noted architecture program in, you know, California. And it was, uh, 
you know, the school that I, I applied to. So <laughs> I'm a, I'm a first generation American. You know, I was one of the few brown boys in school and, and it's not a small thing. People don't understand you. You don't understand them because you're not being raised the way they're being raised and you get along just fine. But, you know, I always have this sense that I'm in another place. I'm not in the place that I necessarily come from or belong in. Do you think architecture is a way for you to create spaces where you belong? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that is the number one thing that I as an architect strive for. When my clients come to me, they're saying they don't belong where they are and they want someplace where they truly, truly belong and they can love. There's something to really be said about having a place where you say you belong and having that place be so special that it's it's just indelible and it's part of that whole you know beautiful memory of your childhood and of your adulthood and your fatherhood in my case. It's very powerful. Glenn was fascinated by how one could find a sense of belonging through thoughtful structural design. At Cal Poly, he felt that he was getting a general education that had a good base but wasn't necessarily inspiration for a unique style. It wasn't until Glenn took advantage of a study abroad trip to Florence that he discovered an appreciation for the link between classical architecture and modernism. So I went there and it was great because they have a really strong modernist movement going on there and they're reactive because the city doesn't allow them to exercise their arts. It's kind of revolutionary for a place like Florence because everything is so historical and the mainstream of architectural practice in really all of, almost all of Europe is preservation, restoration. The most powerful experience I had there was uh, visiting a Carlos Scarpa-designed cemetery. So Carlos Scarpa was a very famous Italian modernist, really was able to metabolize classical architecture and craftsmanship with modern thinking. So when I took my trip up to Venice, Italy, I decided I was just going to make a run for it out into the countryside and see if I could find this cemetery. And of course, we didn't have the internet back then. And one step after another, you know, you ask people and you finally get there. And it was just the most magnificent architectural experience. And ironically, in a cemetery, the architecture told a story about the Brion Vegas, and it really just shed a strong light on how modernism actually does grow out of classical architecture which is not something you see. That really convinced me that modernism is also a very time-rich experience, and that is a very important part of my architecture, is that I'm always trying to harness the sense of time, to capture that sense of time, whether it's the light or the seasons or the way something is made so you can see the hand of the fabricator and the time that it took. You might not be conscious of your sense of time, but your subconscious senses that that time and it makes it a more beautiful experience for you and that that is one of the things that i call a, a primary component of beauty having discovered the seed of a unique design philosophy glenn entered the workforce determined to expand and grow this seed it was a pretty difficult transition actually i graduated you know on the edge of a recession by 1989 basically the economy had collapsed there was a real shortage of job opportunities and i was insistent that i wasn't going to work for a shabby architecture firm or a firm that i didn't really respect so i actually just went and got a job on a framing crew <laughs> framing buildings and actually when i was going when i was in school i i spent my vacations on a construction crew doing concrete i loved 
love building and architecture is a pretty confining profession if all you're doing is, you know, designing in the office. I love this about Glenn. It's hard to go against the grain, especially in the midst of economic downturn. Yet Glenn's determination and drive is what makes him unique and ultimately successful. He refused to follow the norm. He refused to work a nine-to-five job he would hate. He never stops aiming for the top. I think a lot of Glenn's success comes from his willingness to reach for his goals no matter what. Unlike many, Glenn never lets doubt or fear of failure stand in his way. I think this is most apparent in his search for an internship. I interned with John Lautner, and I remember knocking on his door. You just went and knocked on his door? Just knocked on his door. You know, back then, you didn't have the internet. You couldn't You couldn't email people. If you called, you were probably going to get a no. So the only way that I saw that I was going to get in front of John Lautner was if I knocked on the door. They invited me in. They gave me the privilege of a sit-down with John Lautner, and he turned out to be just a really sweet guy. Did you expect that to work when you're like, all right, I'm going to go up to his door and ask for John? You know, I've, I've never taken no for an answer. That just, you know, if it, if it didn't suit me, then we'd have to make that change. You know, you try it, and, and, and that's the number one thing. And Whenever I don't have work, I just walk outside that door and I start to talk to people, and guaranteed... You know, I'll have work. You know, I didn't know this, but everybody loves kids, right? You know, you always want to give a kid a chance. And if a kid's got the gump to come up to your door and knock on it and say, I really love your work and I'd really like to talk to you, how can you say no? And I remember John, I told John, I said, you know, Mr. Lautner, if there's anything you need me to do, I'll do it. You don't even have to pay me. I just want to do it. And, uh... So three months went by, maybe, you know, a couple months went by at least. And I'm sure he just forgotten about me. And he calls my father, you know, because he had the telephone that we didn't have cell phones or landlines. And, uh, and he asked to talk to me. I remember my dad coming over to my desk and saying, Glenn, a gentleman named John Lautner would like to talk to you. And I just felt myself break out in a cold sweat. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, you said you wanted some work and I need some help. And why don't you come down tomorrow and we'll take a look at it together. So he gave me this job to archive every drawing he'd ever done, <laughs> which is amazing. You know, it's, uh, you know, how many people get the opportunity, you know, paid or unpaid to go through really a genius's work, you know, from front to back and look at every drawing carefully and see what's wrong and fix it. And of course, take a little bit more time because you're going to go, you know, I wasn't getting paid anyway, so I could take as much time as I wanted to do it. That was probably the single most educational experience of my entire professional life. Because I saw the genius of so many of those details and they were drawn by him. He would put the same amount of love and attention in a closet door as he would in the entire house. You know, it was just constant drilling down on the most imaginative, functional, and beautiful details uh, that I think anybody in Los Angeles could ever imagine. And, uh, you know, he's revered as probably L.A.'s greatest uh, historical architect. This internship catapulted him into the industry. He soon found work at the prestigious architecture firm Richard Meyer and Partners. But after a few years of diligent work, he became restless. He began to formulate an idea, creating his own firm. 
I remember a couple of moments where there were real breakdowns in my passion to work on the J. Paul Getty Center because it was just taking an enormous amount of time. The process for getting there elucidated that problem of 90% perspiration, 10% inspiration. Well, uh, I think six years I worked on that project. Those projects are so big that you are never doing anything on your own. And at the end, I realized, no, I need to do small projects. I need to be one-on-one -on -one with my clients and feel like there's a lot of heart in everything that's going on. So what was that first step in gathering clients? I remember being hauled into Richard Meyer's office and him chastising me for moonlighting. I was doing a little corporate headquarters in West LA. And I think, you know, every architecture firm should allow their workers to be somewhat independent because you realize a lot of your errors, you know, that, that you make that the partners that you work for absorb. The joy of doing that project made me realize that I need to go out on my own. And then the earthquake hit and there was a lot of work out there at that point. <laughs> yeah, Earthquakes give architects a lot of work. Yeah, and I was living in a mid-rise in Santa Monica, and one of my neighbors was one of the victims of that earthquake. One of his commercial buildings had fallen, and he gave me a project. I'm like, okay, I can make more on that project than I make in a year's salary, so it's worth like doing this project and spending the rest of the year trying to get more work. And uh, that's, that's what I did, and I've never looked back. Looking through that work and, and learning all that, did you feel like you could bring it to your next job? Like how early were you thinking, like, I want to open up my own practice? I think I always wanted to open up my own practice. Although when I decided to go out on my own, I really wanted to build. I was really tired of being in the office all day long. I wanted to have a more holistic approach to be able to design things in the field when you notice something that wasn't seen in the, in the drawing phase. With these new aspirations to self-start his success, Glenn searched for a place where he could establish his reputation as a great architect. Following the destructive 1994 Northridge earthquake, Glenn serendipitously found a space in the beautiful Los Angeles neighborhood of Venice Beach. Just a little background on Venice in the early 90s. It was dangerous and overrun by gangs. You had one of the first Crip sets in LA, the Shoreline Crips, that were in a fierce battle with another gang for crack cocaine sales. But Glenn seemed to see through all this turmoil and truly believed that Venice would become something special. Uh, and I was starting out. I was living in Santa Monica, and I really didn't like it that much in Santa Monica anymore. It seemed really kind of prim and proper. And so I decided to move up to Topanga. And I remember being all depressed and like, I can't win up in Topanga. Came down here to the canals to take a walk. And I was like, you know, and right when I went to go park my car, there was a lot for sale. And, and that was my house that was supposed to be a thousand square foot affordable house for me that ended up being like a 3,500 square foot house because that's all the bank would lend would lend me on and and i ended up bankrupting myself building it forcing myself to sell it in which case i made a bunch of money and i realized like ah okay so you can make money doing this you know when the chips are down in the architecture field you can always you know build homes and sell them and starting that what pitfalls did you run into was it like smooth sailing after that first project oh it's never been smooth sailing <laughs> never been smooth sailing. it's been fun and it's been really challenging and i and i like challenges that you know even when i fail because you learn something from that and it's it's a positive experience you just have to keep your chin up and keep going but it's always hard work you know architecture is hard work whether you're super famous and work just walks in the door or you're not and you have to get work I'm lucky that by the nature of the scale of my practice and the reputation of my 
my work. I have a steady stream of work now, but it wasn't like that in the beginning. You know, you have to prove yourself. Venice became the place where Glenn had the confidence and community support to prove himself as an architect. And with this new reputation, Glenn started to dip his toes into more and more L.A. neighborhoods. So we were curious to get his perspective on just how he was able to conquer the daunting task of designing this diverse city. You know, Los Angeles is a very diverse place. I don't know that um, I have a philosophy other than the philosophy by, you know, which I practice, you know, the, the actual way that I work. And that is that I really, really enjoy being engaged with the people that will benefit from the project, you know, my clients. And I, I, I treat them as designers as well. I really try to bring them into a collaborative spirit of engagement. And philosophically, I do believe that, you know, from a design sense, that I do want to engage with the outside world as much as I can in all my buildings. I don't believe in privacy. I don't believe in security. I think those are all just false uh, premises for shying away from our connections with the world and connections that we need and everybody else needs, right? Glenn clearly understands people. He focuses on creating not only beautiful structures, but also fosters a sense of connection within those structures and the surrounding community. Using this design philosophy, he began to start on some of his most prolific work yet, the Hover House series. With the natural beauty of LA in focus, Glenn envisions structures that are designed to make the most of outdoor space by structurally hovering the building envelope above the land. So we were interested to hear about how he came up with such an interesting concept. Well, the Hover House series, this is Hover House 1, and, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. You don't have a lot of space on these lots, and it seems a shame in a city with such great weather not to live outdoors more. And in this case, this office is seen as an outdoor office. All these windows open, and it's shaded enough that we can see our computer screens and we can do our work. Um, so I basically decided to just let the house hover above the land in the spaces that I really wanted to use the most, which in this case are my garden and my office. Other clients have voiced the need to be able to, you know, entertain more and to be outdoors more with their families. You know, if you look at Hover House 3, you'll see that that house has as much room as you could ever want on the garden level. You know, it's, it's completely natural outdoor living. From his early years as a kid daydreaming about design and architecture to striking gold in Venice, L.A. has been an important influence and catalyst to his career. So we were curious to see what future he hopes to see for the city that's given him so much. Los Angeles has this very opportune geographical location on the Pacific Rim that makes us multicultural. It puts us in touch with many free markets it allows us to flex into different worlds and, and technologies and cultures. And you now we're in California. It's a progressive society, believes in the future, believes in innovation, uh, believes in problem solving. So we have this critical makeup that makes us the right candidate, you know, to create solutions for the world. Uh, so I, I think that L.A. will continue in the foreseeable future to be one of the innovation capitals of the world. 
Innovation is clearly something Glenn and his home city have in common, but it wasn't purely this physical environment that made Glenn so successful. He has an innate talent to pursue purity in design. He is uncompromising. What makes Glenn such an inspiring entrepreneur is his self-determination and the manner in which he looks at past fears or judgments and puts his heart into everything he designs. When you believe in something, you should give it your all. You'll never regret that. You'll regret the opposite. If you, if you fail to act out of fear, you'll regret it one day. You'll be my age and you'll regret it. I think that I let the negative side of the experience of doing very large projects really guide the scale of my practice. And in hindsight, though it would have been more challenging and more stressful uh, to, to branch out and to be braver and, and, and try new things at the expense of profitability and productivity would have eventually paid off. And, and if I were to give a young architect uh, some guidance, I would say fear kills. Fear kills. It kills ideas. It kills people. It, everything we do in life, getting up in the morning, sitting on the toilet, crossing the street is a risk. And if you look at the statistical failure in any one of those arenas, you'll see that probably the least risky thing you can ever do is to put it all out, out on the line for an idea that you truly believe in. I met Glenn by sheer luck. And while not an entrepreneur in the traditional startup sense, it is clear to me from the way he carries himself to the way he engages with the world that he has a spirit most budding entrepreneurs aspire to someday have. He pushes past fears and challenges in a nonchalant way and deals with triumphs in such a humble manner that it makes you question whether he'll ever be satisfied with the level of success he acquires. Maybe he'll always be looking towards that next project. What really struck me about Glenn's character is his focus on connections. Connections to the earth, connections to his craft, and connections to the people he creates for. He's a compassionate man who believes in integrating the thoughtful nature of his character into every one of his endeavors. If there is one thing to take away from Glenn's story, it's that when you believe your craft is bettering the environment, community, and the people around you, you'll not only generate innovative work, but you'll also foster an utterly deep sense of fulfillment. Hey, this episode was a blast to put together, and I want everyone who was part of putting together this episode to tell you what they did. So without further ado, here's the Finding Founders team. Hi, my name is Adrian Tapia, and I was the lead producer for this episode. My name is Charlotte Isidore, and I worked on the editing and helped write the script for the voiceover. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Bowen, and I helped edit and make the voiceover script. Hi, my name is Dharma Shah, and I helped edit and add music. Hey, my name is Luke Riggin, and I edited part of this episode. My name is Sahaj, and I helped edit and find music for this podcast. My name is Maddie Boson, and I helped edit this podcast. 